0: Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. I'm Greg Dalton. Today we're discussing the future of water in a hot and crowded world. Scientists tell us that burning fossil fuels will disrupt local climates and deliver water whiplash. Too much water at times, not enough water at others. The wets will get wetter, and the dries will get drier. Over the next hour, we'll discuss water around the world and here in California. What can average citizens do to use water more wisely? What can governments do to promote more efficient use of this life-giving resource? Joining our live audience here at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to have with us three water experts. Peter Glick is president and co-founder of the Pacific Institute, a water think tank and author of The World's Water, one of the definitive books on water. Brian Richter is chief scientist of the Water Resource uh, Global Freshwater Program at the Nature Conservancy and author of Chasing Water, a guide for moving from scarcity to sustainability. And Brooke Barton is director of Water Program of the Water Program at Ceres, it's an investor activism group on sustainability. Please welcome them to Climate One. Uh, I'd like to begin by asking you briefly, by way of introduction, to tell us um, how you got into water as a profession. Brooke Barton, how did you get into water? I mean, we all came from water way back, but
1: let's (laughs) Well, I I guess my first sort of formative experience with thinking about water scarcity was growing up in New Mexico. I I grew up in Carlsbad, New Mexico, which is a ranching area, which is a oil and gas area, and now is very much the epicenter of hydraulic fracturing in New Mexico. and really, we had a beautiful river. We have a beautiful river running through my hometown. It was always subject to drought and clearly something that the community appreciated, but we didn't fully have control over the health of that river year to year because of a lot of the different activities going on. So that really struck a chord with me growing up. I've come to this profession through a roundabout way. I worked in international development for a while, and at Ceres, we've really had the opportunity to work with corporations and investors in a unique way around water helping to reframe it as a financial and economic risk that's important to their bottom lines.
0: Thank you. Peter Glick, how did you get into water as a profession or as an area of wonder?
2: Uh, well, thank you. Uh, and thank you all for coming. Um, I came out of academia. Uh, I came out of environmental science, out of engineering. Uh, but it became pretty clear to me early that that engineering was not the big problem or the big solution, uh, that environmental problems were, in the end, all connected to water. Uh, Every one of them that we think about, food, energy, human health, ecosystem health. Uh, I worked early on the connection between conflict and resources, and everybody was talking about oil, and it just became more and more clear to me that, in fact, it wasn't oil, it was water. Uh, And so I've continued to work in that field. Uh, I grew up on the East Coast, but my Dad was always drawn to western rivers and spent an inordinate amount of time for an Easterner down in the Colorado River. Uh, and I think that's emblematic of, of much of the problems we face worldwide. It's this love of the land and love of water, and yet the realization that it's tied to everything we care about.
0: Something very special about moving water. Brian Richter, how about your, I think it starts with uh, perhaps paddling. What's your formative experience? Huh? Well,
3: yes, um, I grew up in Southern California, I grew up in San Diego. And so from a very early age, um, we were very conscious of the scarcity of water, the shortage of water, um, being told to save water, you know, even back in, uh, in uh, well, 1960s. And, um, but I did have a chance to start working as a whitewater river guide in the Sierra Nevada and Stanislaus River and, and, um. During the time that I was working as a guide, they started, or were about to start construction, I guess it's New Malones, (laughs) and and that made me very curious as to why they were going to build a dam or another dam on the river, and why do we need that dam, and didn't they know what it was going to do to the river, and that sort of thing, and that line of questioning sent me off to graduate school, and I've been pretty much working on that same question, I guess, for the rest of my career, trying to figure out um, how do we manage water in a better way so that um, we can hopefully have less impact on the natural world.
0: Peter Glick, let's talk about water internationally. Uh, How is water connected with Islamic State and what they're doing right now?
2: Okay, so that's a great example of conflict over water. Uh, We do a lot of work at the Institute on all aspects of sustainability, but one of the pieces is looking at the historical connections between conflict and water resources, and we maintain a chronology. If you like history, we maintain a chronology that goes back 3,000, 4,000 years with examples of conflict over water. And unfortunately, the earliest examples, three or four thousand years ago, were in ancient Mesopotamia, the Tigris and the Euphrates River. Today, Turkey, Iraq, and Syria. And again, unfortunately, the most recent examples are, are in the same region. Uh, it's a region where water crosses borders. It's a region where there are uh, tensions over ideology and religion and uh uh politics and access to resources and unfortunately right now in the Tigris and the Euphrates basin mm. we see the conflicts that have arisen for historical reasons but we see conflicts where water is at the heart of uh uh, uh water is a tool of conflict water is a target of conflict uh water is a weapon of war it's it's another example of our inability really to separate politics and water
0: and isn't there even uh some example that, that water uh played a role in, in Sudan and other areas, it's the, the Middle East now, but it seems to be a lot of civil wars. Even civil wars uh within countries can be can be water uh water related, Peter Glick.
2: Yeah, I think the way to think about this is not wars over water, but the role that water plays in, in worsening conflicts right. or yeah. triggering conflicts or being used as a weapon. Uh, or a target of war like we see on the Tigris and the Euphrates. But there are other regions in Africa, for example, where pastoralists and farmers are in conflict over control of water, over access to water points. Uh, I think as the world grows, as populations grow, as the economy grows, as demand for water grows, The scarcity of water is more and more likely to lead to conflicts of one kind or another. We see conflicts in the Western U.S., and hopefully they won't be violent conflicts, but they're political conflicts. And in parts of the world where politics is more difficult, sometimes what we have is violence. Uh, And I think we're going to see more of that, not less of that.
0: Brian Richter, your book also has a list of some of the high-stress areas. It includes the Central Valley of California, the Colorado River. But internationally, what are some other flashpoints for water? Well, just
3: last week, I had my first chance to, to visit Israel and Jordan. Um, so, part of the world that, that Peter's gotten to know um, over over the years, and uh, it was really an enriching experience for me because when you go there, you it's it's just so obvious to you how central. The Jordan River and that water supply is to those countries, and so it forms a dividing line between Israel and Jordan. Um, and then, of course, you have the disputed, disputed West Bank, you know, right on that border, of that river as well. And those countries literally would not exist without the Jordan River. It's uh, it's 95 percent of their water supply, and um, and so it's so it's an undercurrent of a lot of the tensions, as Peter was saying. It's it's. Um, It's a source of conflict. There's a lot of fear over the competition or or not having enough. And yet that river now is down to less than 5% of its original volume. So as it enters the Dead Sea, so it flows out of the Sea of Galilee, downriver, ends up in the Dead Sea. Basically, no water makes it to the Dead Sea anymore because it's so heavily used upstream. And as a result, the Dead Sea, the water level in the Dead Sea is dropping a meter every single year. And so they, as the shoreline recedes, all the tourist resorts that are around the Dead Sea are all, you know, left high and dry and kilometers away from the edge of the sea. And so it's, um, they, they have some real serious challenges there. And it was just, what was fascinating to me, Greg, is to see um, that, yes, there was tension in the air, but also um, they continued to have a conversation about how they're going to mutually utilize that water resource.
0: Brooke Barton, that raises the question of uh, sort of business impact, economic impact of, of water stress, water lines receding away from uh, resorts, impact on property values, et cetera. How are some of the companies involved in series in looking at this water stress and conflict? Because certainly yeah. it's important to their business.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we're entering a whole new paradigm in the business community and how they think about water and how they value water. I mean... Traditionally, in in almost every place we can think of, the business community has typically been preferenced with cheap, abundant water, even in places where water hasn't been that abundant. Um, So CFOs of major corporations, you know, when they're looking at their financial statements, water is not coming up as a significant cost driver. It is really a de minimis cost traditionally. And, and, you know, I think that... um, is changing slowly in some places where we're seeing the price of water, especially the price of industrial water, go up. But it's not happening fast enough for that to be the motivator. What I think has become the more of the motivator, and certainly we've been working with the investment community to help them ask these questions of companies, but it's the fact that you know, these shortages are, are going to lead to decisions by politicians around who gets the water. Increasingly, companies are afraid they won't be on the favorable end of that decision. Um, and we know, you know, there have been many examples of co- companies losing their access to water because of concerns by communities. Coca-Cola, the story of Coca-Cola in India has certainly been repeated often. It is certainly a, a story that, um, you know, where concerns by community in, in southern India led them to have to shut a, a bottling plant um, the company still feels very strongly that they were not responsible for the, the pollution and the over-abstraction issues that were um, raised for, in that community, but it nevertheless re- led to a global campaign. Uh, it led to significant damage to their brand, and the company in turn has very much internalized what this means as a business. The highest, you know, the highest offices in that company are, are thinking about water as one of their most strategic risks. In the past in 10 years, have invested at least $2 billion in water efficiency projects within their own operations globally, but also investing heavily in projects around their plants, really thinking about the watershed and and putting dollars and partnerships in place to help uh, restore rivers, to help uh, replenish groundwater. Uh, it's become a real part of their business model. Um, and, you know, I think that that's something we're seeing here in California as well. There are companies that um, not necessarily because of um, outside pressure, but because they see that their business livelihood is completely tied up with the future of water in California. Driscoll's Berries, which is in um, based out of Watsonville, is a, one of the largest berry producers uh, in the in the whole world. Um, is a really interesting example of a company that looked out and saw what a tremendous uh, risk they're facing in terms of the groundwater that they depend on in the Central Valley. Um, or excuse me, not in the Central Valley, in the Central Coast aquifer in the Pajaro Valley. And and they have, um, you know, their CEO, Miles Ryder, who's third-generation farmer, um, uh, grandson of the founder of the company, really took a look and said, you know, if we don't get a handle on the groundwater depletion that is associated with the, you know, the agricultural production and the berry production in our area, there will be no future here. And they've played an instrumental role in bringing together the growers, the landowners, um, and other parties that have traditionally been at each other's throats in that area, um, uh, regulators, uh, conservation groups, to, to come up with a plan. And working really directly hand-in-hand with farmers to help them be much more efficient with water use, to help recharge aquifers. Um, and to really look forward to how they can chart a future going, you know, in, in the context of obviously the worst drought this state's ever seen.
0: Peter Glick, is that kind of collaboration the exception or, or the rule these days in terms of a company saying, oh, we've we got a problem on the horizon. It's not this quarter. It's not today. We better uh, plan for this and get ahead of
2: it. So the bad news is it's the exception. Uh, but the good news is that it's increasingly the rule. I think Brook's point is absolutely right, that companies are an example of groups that are coming to realize the risks associated with our failure to deal with water. Uh, there's corporate risk. There's regulatory risk. There's access risk to, to to the water itself. There's reputational risk to companies. And the companies that don't figure that out are the ones that get blindsided. They're mm-hmm. the ones that lose reputation or lose access to water, lose license to operate, And the ones that do figure it out, and it's not just companies, but it's the farmers or the cities or the individuals that do figure out that these risks are growing, think about ways of reducing those risks. They figure out ways of restoring groundwater or working with local communities. They figure out ways of using the limited water that they have more efficiently. So it's the exception, but... Unless it becomes the rule we 're not going to move towards sustainable water and I think the realization that we have to move toward more sustainable management is driving some of these innovations and, and if that 's the good news, I think there, there's more and more of that to, to be had
0: peter Glick, you 've been a big advocate of the human right to water. Uh, is that in conflict with uh, say creating water markets or some of the in a collision course with some of these corporations, or is, are they compatible
2: yes so uh, there's an enormous tension in the water world between the human right to water and water as an economic good. And the truth is, I think it's both of those things. We've done, we did early work on the human right to water. There was a tremendous debate worldwide about this. And in 2010, the UN formally declared a legal human right to water and sanitation. It was a great, it was a great thing. And now there's a lot of debate about what that means, how you implement it for companies, for, for countries, for individuals. But, but there's clearly a human right to basic needs for water and sanitation. But water is also an economic good. It's fundamental to our corporate operations, to the to the production of food. Uh, we ought to price water. There's a big debate about pricing of water in water markets. Balancing the human right to water and the economic aspects of water is another of these challenges in the water world. We want to price water because we want it to be used effectively and efficiently. But you don't want to price water in a way that makes it inaccessible to the poorest populations who need water, no matter what, no matter their ability to pay. And that's a uh, an interesting challenge.
0: Mm-hmm. Brooke Barton, is that a challenge? How are some of the companies that are, you're involved with that series taking that up? Do they support a human right to water, or say, "Oh, that's not good for business. We don't want hu- another human right thing. That could be complicated."
1: <laughs> well, I, I'll, I'll grant you that American companies have not usually been at the forefront of the human rights debate. Um, but I, I, I do, or the
2: U.S. government, in or the U.S. In le-
1: indeed. And um, but I, I would definitely say that it is becoming much more widespread. Um, a a policy matter within companies that do have a significant impact or or interest in water. And, you know, numerous companies, some of the ones we've mentioned already, Coca-Cola, Nestle, um, companies like Ford even, which doesn't have a particularly large water footprint, have stepped forward and said, you know, we recognize that this it's incumbent on us to understand the impact that our water use has on the communities that uh, are near our facilities that are affected by our supply chain. And we're going to start to try to do something about understanding that and hopefully responding to it. And what that means exactly is different for every company. We're in a very early stage in understanding how companies can address human rights. Um, But I I think that the point that, you know, when we talk about water markets, and there's a lot of enthusiasm right now about... How water is the new oil from a kind of financial investment perspective. There's a lot of folks uh, on Wall Street talking about how we're going to be in a future of, of you know very sophisticated water markets that um, you know where we're going to be able to make a whole lot of money uh, on speculation of water. And I think one of the messages that messages that we're really trying to focus on with the investment community is that water is not like oil. It, it, you know we do need to build um, water markets that are much more effective in allocating water that do signal the true value of water, but we have to keep in mind this, this sort of lifeline human right access, mm-hmm. and we have to keep in mind that water um, has value even if it's in the ground and in the river, and, and that's different from oil. We don't really put an economic value on oil if it's never going to be taken out. Of the ground. Um, but we, we really need to think about the fact that water is, has no real substitutes, unlike oil. And we all know we're hopefully moving toward a future where there is less fossil fuel. We do, we are all investing in generating uh, other energy alternatives. That's not the case for water. I mean, desalination is going to play its role, uh, hopefully a fairly small one, but it, we do not have large scale replacements. So, this thinking about the, that the parallels between the water markets and the oil markets. There are some flaws and and a lot of opportunity, I think, to to help shape those now while we're still early in in the space of of developing water markets.
0: Brooke Barton is director of the water program at Ceres, an investor's uh, advocacy group. Other guests today at Climate One are Peter Glick from the Pacific Institute and Brian Richter from the Nature Conservancy. I'm Greg Dalton. Brian Richter, uh, if there is a market around water as an economic good, does the environment lose?
3: Well, not necessarily. I I think that... um, you know these both the conflicts between the human access to water as well as how the how the environment fares in a water market context um we can have all of those things together uh, but but they but they depend very heavily upon ultimately upon having good governance having the institutions and in the capacity to manage the water well to meet all of those benefits so one of the things that gets really mixed up here greg with with water markets and pricing of water is that there's a misunderstanding that that you can actually buy the water itself, um, that you can actually own it as a resource. And, and that in most parts of the world, that's actually a fallacy. The government actually retains the ultimate ownership of the water. That's true here in California. It's true in, in the western United States. And what But what they do is they issue the right to use the water. So when we talk about a water market, what we're talking about is trading in the rights to use water rather than trading water itself. Now, the reason that that, that may seem like a nuanced semantics to a lot of you in the audience, but it's important because it highlights the really critical role that government has to play in that in regulating a market and setting the rules and making sure that the environment doesn't get left out in making sure that human access to water is provided. Um, I think all three of us really understand that with pricing and with markets, they can do a lot of good. They can really incentivize, if you have the ability to trade water that you've saved. In other words, you're a farmer, you you yeah. invest in more efficient irrigation practices, you save half of the water. You no longer need to use your full full right to use water. Um, if there's the ability to trade that water, to, to actually sell the water, lease the water, it's a hell of an incentive for, for driving conservation and driving better efficiency. Um, so, and to your question more specifically about environment, you know, as the Nature Conservancy and, and uh, you know, an, an organization that's very familiar with real estate transactions, we've bought, you know, as much land as just about any private entity within the United States over the last 50 years. We see markets as a huge opportunity for us to be able to buy water rights back in systems that have been overappropriated, where we have too little water flowing down the rivers. We see the opportunity of markets is, is we can use the power of raising money in various ways, to buy some of those water rights back and put them back in the river where where we need them but,
2: Peter a, there's an important point though that I want to emphasize that Brian uh, mentioned, and that is that when we gave away all the water yeah we didn 't give it to the environment we took it from the environment, yeah. so all of the water rights in California and mo- most of the West are use rights and they 're being used by humans and they come out of the environment and they right. if we we need to figure out a way to if we're going to move to markets of any kind, we have to figure out how the ecosystems can participate in markets. And we haven't, you know, there are examples of, of that, but we haven't done that well enough.
0: Peter Glick, some people hear water markets and they hear privatization, and that's a scary right. thing. Right. Is is water privatization always scary?
2: Oh, um, yes. <laughs> but, but here, but... It doesn't have to be, and this is Brian's point. Uh, privatization takes a lot of different forms. A, a, a bottled water company that pumps public groundwater and turns it into a private little plastic bottle is privatizing water. It's commodifying a public good. A private company that takes over water management of a water system is a is a form of privatization that's totally different. Uh, Privatization has risks to it. If it's water is a public resource and you have private participation, what you really need is strong government oversight. You need regulation. You need monitoring. You need public input into the privatization process. And we've published on this at the Pacific Institute. There are reports that you can get. There's a, a great old report now called The New Economy of Water that looks at this. And we're not anti-privatization, but but there are serious risks to privatization that if you don't have strong governance, uh, come back to bite you. And and so I think that's the balance. Fifteen percent of the water systems in the U.S. are private. We mostly have a public water system, 85 percent public. But 40 million people or so get water from private water agencies that are overseen by public entities, And it's that governance issue that that makes the difference between good and bad privatization. And these days,
0: though, there's not a lot of confidence in American government, at least maybe not federal government. Maybe that's different at the local level where people are regulating water. Have there been agencies that have gone private and then rolled back to the public after the contract period?
2: Yes. A good example is Atlanta. Uh, there was a big push toward privatization of these public agencies in the late 90s and early 2000s. And Atlanta was probably the biggest city that went private. They turned over their public water agency to a private manager. And within two or three years, they had to reverse that because uh, the prices went way up and the public service went down and complaints went up and pipes weren't being fixed. And, and they actually rolled that back. Uh, Great Britain privatized their water system completely in 1989, I think it was Margaret Thatcher, as part of the privatization push. And today, all of the, all of the British water agencies are, are private. But one of the things they learned right after that was that the government oversight wasn't very good, and the Office of Water, which was the agency that oversaw the public Interest had to step up their game. They had to come in and they had to to basically lay down the law for these private companies that weren't providing adequate public service. So there's that tension, and, and it happens, but you want strong public oversight.
0: And Brian Richter, isn't it true that a lot of, there's a few, what uh, often French-based global water conglomerates that might be, Stronger, smarter, bigger than developing countries or even some counties. There's some famous cases in Bolivia and other places where things got quite wild. Uh, so let's talk about the developing world, whether they are kind of have a fair hand when it comes to Water, water Month and Nationals.
3: Well, thanks, Greg, because it's easy for, for Peter and I and, and Brooke to talk about um, pricing water markets aren't necessarily bad. You just have to have good governance. But you're raising the point of um, it's really, you know, it's it's really hard to find good, strong, well-resourced governments in a lot of the developing regions of the world, and um, and so these these opportunities for private companies to take over the management of public water supply systems um, can lead to peril. And you know, one of the examples I talk about in the book, the story's been told many, many times in the water community, is a fairly small community in, uh, although one of the bigger cities in Bolivia, called Cochabamba. And um, it's really been talked about in the news and in documentary films and that sort of thing. But, uh, but in essence, um, th- the government and the local communities were really struggling to be able to manage that public water supply system. It wasn't good for the people in that community. There were, you know, something close to a third or a half of the residents that weren't getting reliable water supply, even when the government owned it. And so... Private company came in. There's all sorts of reasons why that they will they will provide as to why they um, why they had to raise the rates, but they raised the rates to the point where it put a lot of put made it unaffordable water price for a lot of the population of that city of Colchabamba. and the citizens rioted. And unfortunately, a 17 year old kid got shot um, in the central plaza during that riot. And so um, these things can blow up. They can really go south. They can really go bad. Um, but I think then what we would say is uh, be careful, as Peter is saying. You know, privatization is risky, and, um, and if, if any entity, the World Bank or any multilateral funder or any supporter is pushing toward privatization, they need to be very much aware of those risks and make sure that the government is ready to, ready to, um, to manage those risks.
0: Brian Richter, you also write about some success stories, China being one of them. Uh, let's talk about the positive side where water is being managed well mm. and models for other um, governance and water stewardship.
3: Well, the one that I really spent a lot of time in my Chasing Water book talking about is Australia. Um, and um,
0: the, You might set up the big dry I and mean, what the lessons are from that. Great.
3: So back in about 1997, Australia went into their drought of record um, it was called the Millennium Drought. They also called it the Big Dry. It lasted for about a decade. It lasted until 1997, 1998 in different parts of Australia. It was absolutely devastating to everything there. Um, the ecological health, there were massive fish kills, there were bl- toxic blue-green algal blooms, um, uh, farmers and, and dairy producers lost entire herds of cattle. Um, rice went out of production entirely during that time. And I think it was a bellwether for a lot of countries that are on the brink of of water scarcity, where they're so heavily dependent upon using the available water supplies on a normal basis, and then all of a sudden you go into a drier-than-normal period like you're experiencing here in California with your drought, and all of a sudden you're getting... In Australia, 60% less rainfall during that 10-year period on average. And so um, devastating ecologically, devastating economically... Another parallel in, in Australia was that the state governments really were sort of dominant with respect to managing water allocation, water quantity in Australia. That's very much the case in the United States. Our federal government has a lot of say in water quality, much less say when it comes to water quantity. So the states rule. And that was the case in Australia. But when they got things got so bad in Australia, the federal government, the commonwealth government, stepped in and said, you're not moving quick, quickly enough to adjust to this horrible situation we're going to basically take over the water of the murray-darling basin and they used a couple of international biodiversity conventions by the way to do that um, but they took over they passed a, a national act in two thousand seven it set up a basin-wide authority so even though the the, the murray-darling basin is shared by multiple states in australia Um, they put one unified authority in charge and charged them with coming up with a new plan for managing the water. To make a long story short, what the plan ultimately said is we have to get our water use down by a third. And we have to do it really, really quickly because everything is at risk. Our water security, our economy, the ecological health of this system is at grave risk. We have to get water use down by a third. So as part of that national plan, they allocated originally about $10 billion. It's now grown to about $14 billion of investment in that one river basin to do two things. One was to buy back water rights um, to get the overall use down to what they thought was a more sustainable level. And second, they invested. they they're investing really heavily in farmers, paying them to implement much more efficient irrigation systems. And as they do that, the agreement with the government, they give them the money, but the agreement is that the water that's saved, most of the water that's saved, goes back to the Commonwealth government. And so the combination of actually buying the water rights themselves and then paying for improved irrigation efficiency, those are the two ways that they're getting to a third less water use. And, Greg, they're making, they're making extremely good progress. They're getting closer and closer, probably within the next five years. Um, they should be able to get it down to that target level. And it will be a much more sustainable level. The use is going to be brought down to a level that they feel is going to be much easier to handle um, going forward into the future, even, even during f- future droughts like the millennium drought that they, that they just had.
0: Brian Richter is the Chief Scientist of the Global Freshwater Program at the Nature Conservancy. If you're just joining us, our guests at Climate One today also include Ruth Barton from Ceres and Peter Glick from the Pacific Institute. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, Peter Glick, our delegation of Californians recently went to Australia uh, to learn about the water situation there. Some people think that what happens in Australia might be a harbinger for what happens here. What, what lessons for California can we learn from Australia? Mm.
2: Well, we haven't learned the main lesson, <laughs> um, which is it's smarter to do these things in advance than in a crisis. Uh, they had a millennium drought. Uh, Brian's absolutely right. It started like our drought, went, went a year and then two years and then three years, and they did what we did. They muddled through. They overpumped their groundwater. They didn't think about water rights. They, you know, they did minor things. And then it kept going. It was four years and then five years and ultimately nine or ten years. By the end of that, they were doing things that we, frankly, should have been doing a long time ago and still are not doing. Rethinking water rights, aggressively figuring out how to restore our ecosystems while maintaining some form of a healthy agricultural economy. Yeah. Uh, their urban water use—you know—we think we're pretty good at the on, in our urban water use. We've done most of us have replaced our toilets and our washing machines, and and we're trying to get our water use down. Their urban water use is half or less than half of what the, a Northern Californian or a Southern Californian water. Does that use include is. all the beer they drink? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe not. Okay, all right. And it's not um, good beer, by the way. So, so the 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 point is that. We're we're in a bad drought now. Uh, we may be in a long-term drought, as was Australia, and we are not yet doing the things that they learned they had to do and could do successfully. I think I think if next year, you know, winter's just started, the rainy season's just started, we don't know whether we're going to have a wet year or a dry year. If we have another dry year, we're going to start to look finally at some of the things that Australia yeah. has taken to heart. That we've not yet taken to heart.
0: Brooke Barton, another thing that happened in Australia is they built some desalination plants, hugely expensive, and then they mothballed them. You yeah. said earlier that desal you hope will be a small part of it, but some people look at desal. San Diego says it's got to be part of the picture.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I certainly understand why policymakers are looking at a broad set of options to for supply security, but... Um, you know, what we, we know is that in most cases, um, desalinated water as part of the total portfolio of, of water supply options is going to be the most expensive. But what often happens is that high-priced desalinated water is sort of averaged across the whole portfolio, and prices don't go up to, for consumers in a way that actually tells them that that additional gallon that they're using um, that's now coming from an offshore desal plant Uh, is actually much more expensive than all the other water they're using. Um, So we're not communicating the true cost of these additional supplies to consumers. And often the the work that utilities are doing, that folks who are responding to drought are doing, to communicate and, and get that sort of efficiency. I mean, in Australia, they were telling people every day on the nightly news, the reservoir levels, they were reminding people. Persistently to, to change their habits, and people did, and more or less that stuck. And so in addition to a lot of rain that came after the end of the big drought, there was a change in habits, and these desal plants are now mothballed, and maybe someday they'll be used, but they're a tremendous expense. Um, so it, I think policymakers have to be very thoughtful about uh, how they invest, and the investors in these projects should be very thoughtful about the security of revenue that they're going to be getting from cities. Um,
0: Peter Glick, I heard about a a billboard in the Midwest that shows the Great Lakes, and there's a straw in each lake, and on one straw it says Arizona, and the other straw it says California, and the other straw it says New Mexico, uh, which is basically saying beware that these uh, southwestern states are after our water. Is that possible? And with the algae bloom, would we even want that water?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's possible, technically engineers love to think about these things <laughs> but it's not ever going to happen uh, we we get we we talk about this all the time uh there's a lot of water over here there's not much water over here if we could just move it from one place to the other isn't that the solution and
1: well that's what you guys have done here and
2: in the 20th century that's what we've done yeah. to some degree We've built an enormous infrastructure in California and in the West to move water from one place to another, to store it in the wet season so we can use it in the dry season. And that infrastructure has permitted all of us to live the lives that we that we lead. But it's really expensive to move water from one place to another. Gravity is not your friend uh, when it comes to moving water. And the Rocky Mountains are in the way <laughs> be, between here and there. And there is a lot of water, and here we we want it. So that's not going to happen. Sort of like desal, it's really expensive. In the end, this is partly economics. And if desal's, if, frankly, desal's cheaper than moving water from the Missouri or the Mississippi or the Great Lakes to the West. So we're, we're not going to do that. Uh, we could do it, but we're not going to do it. And it's not just an economic question, frankly. It's now an ecological question. The Great Lakes go up or down a foot. They're not happy. Uh, and, and, a, and a long-term withdrawal from the Great Lakes would, wouldn't, wouldn't make them happy either.
3: Greg, can I follow up sure, on that so Brian, real quickly? The, um, uh, the Great Lakes and, and exports of water out of the Great Lakes is actually a really interesting story because back in the late 1990s, a private company obtained a water permit from the province of Ontario to, to pipe water out of Lake Superior, put it in a tanker ship, and ship it to Asia and I don't remember the volumes, but they were pretty enormous. I mean, not you know, only putting a dent really in, the, in Lake Superior, but still large volumes of water. There was such public outcry about that once it got out into, out into the general public that then the eight states and three Canadian provinces that share the Great Lakes banded together and wrote legislation, international uh, an international agreement that prohibits exports out of the Great Lakes. So technically it could be done, legally it's now illegal to do it um but you know the forces of of economies and and when people run out of water um it's hard to say what the you know what could happen in the future i guess
0: if you're just joining us we're talking about water in california around the world at climate one today i'm greg dalton my guests are brian richter the chief scientist for the global freshwater program at the nature conservancy brooke barton director of the water program at Ceres; and peter glick president and co-founder of the pacific institute brooke barton uh are there some cool technologies and innovation out there that might bring some new things to the water uh, uh, use that that uh, might save us a little bit here?
1: Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of technologies that are new and cutting edge. There's a lot of technologies that are not so new and cutting edge that still aren't being deployed. So, um, when I think about technology and water, it's there. You know, there are so many, so still so much low hanging fruit in terms of basic conservation opportunities. So. Uh, certainly, you know, drip irrigation, there's a lot of kinds of drip irrigation, but even basic drip irrigation uh, is still not widely deployed in many parts of the agricultural economy both here in California and and other places. Um, But on top of that, there are all kinds of very interesting technologies and use of big data that's coming to be built into irrigation approaches, for instance, and variable rate irrigation that allows you to water less in one corner of the field versus another based on on having soil moisture sensors that are sending information across your fields into a centralized computer. Um, There's a lot of interesting technology that's being developed that uh, growers are already using that, You know, comes from cloud based uh, computing, uh, layers of of information around uh, weather patterns, um, evapotranspiration, data that um, can now be used in a much smarter way to help farmers plan when to. irrigate, when to um, seed, when to harvest. So just on the agricultural scale, there's a lot, but again, I think we're facing some of the same systemic challenges to uptake. We see uh, the price of water being too low sometimes to justify that irrigation. We see problems between the incentives because the folks who are farming the land are not the same as the ones who own the land, and therefore have a different stake in improving water efficiency. Um, and, and more than anything, um you know, we simply aren't seeing as much demand from companies, you know, the folks who are buying agricultural produce for that efficiency. So that's, that's a big focus of ours is how do we get the food and beverage companies that have a stake in these aquifers, have a stake in the rivers that are irrigating the food that uh, enables them to, you know, thrive as companies, to do more to work with farmers, to finance that drip irrigation, to help them um, take on some of the newer technologies much faster.
0: Peter Glake, there's been a a terrible drought in uh, Texas, and yet fracking continues in that Mm. state. Let's talk about fracking and the drought and water and whether uh, that's how that's going to affect demand and quality of
2: freshwater. So that's a big topic, uh, obviously. But um, and we're doing a study actually right now for the state of California on the risks of fracking, focusing on our pieces, the water risks. Uh, there are a lot of pieces to that puzzle. One is the amount of water required for fracking, and fracking is hydraulic fracturing. It's a, a method to expand our ability to extract oil and, and natural gas, uh, and there's concern about a potential great expansion of fracking in California, uh, although it would be for oil, not for gas. But the amount of water is an issue. We're obviously in a drought, and we're a water-short state. Even when we're not in a drought, is that going to be a challenge? The bigger concern from our perspective is to water quality. Uh, We risk contaminating our groundwater aquifers. A lot of produced water comes back up with the oil and gas that's produced, and we have to dispose of that. And in California, as hard as this may be to believe, we still have unlined pits for surface disposal of oil and gas-produced water, which is a serious threat to groundwater contamination. Uh, so, there are water quality problems, there are water quantity problems. Um, I, I, think it's a, I, I think it's a problem that we need to understand better before. We permit any sort of expansion uh, in this state. And some
0: people would say the industry is moving toward waterless hydraulic fracturing, perhaps using uh, recycled water, salinated water, that they're they're aware of that water risk. But, Britt Barton, did you want to comment on fracking and water?
1: Yeah, I, I just wanted to say that, you know, we've looked at this question from the national level. We've looked at 40,000 um, sh- uh, shale uh, wells that have been fracked in the past year and a half, and Indeed, there is a, you know, a very shocking you know, correlation between the predominance of, of shale energy development and drought conditions. About 55% of the wells that were, were drilled were in regions of extreme drought in the past year and a half. So Texas, New Mexico, California, uh, a few other regions... of all the wells that were fracked in in the country were in areas of extremely high water stress, meaning water is already over allocated in those places. Uh, And so the oil and gas companies are facing some challenges increasingly to access the water. Um, And uh, something along the lines of uh, 40% were in areas of groundwater depletion and groundwater was being used for this for this activity. So it's not just in California. I think the, the scale of, of hydraulic fracturing is actually quite small in California at this point. It's not likely to expand at the scale we've seen in other places, Um, And the common refrain in the industry, of course, from oil and gas producers is, you know, in Texas and many of these states, we're using less than 1% of total water use. But if you look at it on a regional scale, at a localized scale, there are counties, uh, Colorado and Texas, New Mexico, where something like 85% of all water is going to fracking. So the communities there are under intense pressure to sell their water, to receive the pollution, and, 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 and really bear the burden.
0: Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. So you guys have been
3: talking about uh, sort of the relatively near-term issues of water challenges that we face over the next few years, decade. But there's, there is research, for example, from the University Corporation for Atmospheric Research that shows a little after the mid-century that most of the contiguous United States will be in, in drought conditions equivalent to two to three times the 1930s dust bowl. Can you please comment on what we're
2: going to do and... Those time frames? Peter Glick? We're, we're not prepared for that. So so the reality is the climate's changing. Uh, the reality is the climate's changing because of human activities. And the reality is that one of the worst impacts will be on water resources. Uh, because the I, I say this, I say this to, to audiences all the time, but the hydrologic cycle that you all remember from second grade evaporation, formation of clouds, condensation, precipitation, runoff, evaporation. The hydrologic cycle is the climate cycle. And the evidence is already clear that the hydrologic cycle is being affected by climate change. Temperatures are going up. Demand for water goes up when temperatures go up. Precipitation patterns are changing. Storm frequency and intensity is changing. There's been some really interesting new research about the links between the Western drought and some of the atmospheric conditions that have been worsened by human-caused climate change. Uh, we already don't manage our water resources sustainably. And so we have to think about water-sustainable management in general but we have to think about it in the context of a changing climate not a static climate and so it makes the idea of conservation and efficiency and smart technology and better economics all that much more important in the context of a changing climate
0: so peter glick if someone says "Eh, we have droughts all the time in california is this drought connected to the climate what do you say
2: Yes, okay. So the issue is not whether the current drought in California was caused by climate change. That's a misleading comment, because it's easy to say we don't know. The issue is whether or not the drought, the extreme events, droughts and floods that we're experiencing, are now influenced by climate. And the answer to that is unambiguously yes. So would this drought have occurred anyway? Maybe. We get droughts all the time. But it's hotter now. The last 36 months in California have been the driest in the historic record. They've also been the hottest in the historic record. And that alone is an influence of climate change on drought. It means demand for water goes up. It means pressure on the existing reservoirs goes up. It means evaporative losses goes up. Uh, the Hurricane Sandy caused by climate change Wrong question. Influenced by climate change. Because sea level has gone up nine inches in the last century. And it occurred at a time when sea level was high, When when the tide was high, the flooding caused by Sandy was worsened by climate change. That's the issue. It's the influence of climate change on these extreme events now.
0: Peter Glick is president of the Pacific Institute. You're listening to Climate One. Let's have our next question.
1: Uh, Carter Brooks, uh, artist and philosopher of climate art. So... um, for any of you, but I think Peter probably is the one that can answer this. When one of the places that water is stored is in our alpine regions, our mountains here in California, obviously. But I sort of, in the long term, looking at the Himalayas and the rapid, you know, deflation of the glaciers there, um, wonder about the day when there's no longer a buffer of water for something like a quarter of the world's population. So my question is, what do we know about How soon that buffer of water will be a concern for us, and and what are your thoughts on on preparing for unreliable water for a large part of the world's population?
2: The water towers of Asia. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question, and it's very relevant for California because we depend on snowpack in the winter to store our water. We depend on the slow melt of that snow in the spring and the summer because we, we can't possibly build enough storage, physical storage, to mimic that, to replace that, and we're losing that. But This is one of the things that we know with a very high degree of confidence in the climate science community, is we're losing snowpacks. Snow lines are going up. More of what falls in the winter is falling as rain and, and not snow and running off faster, and we'll see it in the Himalayas and the Alps and the Andes, and it's a water, it's a terrible Complication to our water management problem. It's not going to stop raining. These these areas are not going to lose water uh, overall, but they're going to lose their buffer. They're going to change. We're going to have management problems with the change in the timing. We're going to see more flooding in the spring uh, than we would have seen otherwise. It's another example of of the things that we know are already happening and are going to get worse. Yeah. Let me let me just elaborate. Uh,
3: Peter alluded to this this problem of. There are management challenges with the change in timing. So in much of the West, the timing of the peak of snowmelt runoff um, off the Rockies and off of some of the mountains in the Pacific Northwest has shifted, notably shifted, by a week in some places, two weeks, three weeks in others. And that may not seem catastrophic, but when you gain an understanding of... The fine level of design that we've that we've created our water management systems, our reservoirs, our delivery systems to cities and farms, um, it's actually been the the designs are fairly sensitive to that amount of shift in water availability. So if you're getting a lot more water. Coming off sooner in the year, do you have the reservoir capacity to capture that water? Is a lot of it going to spill? And then after that, that rush of water has come off earlier, and you end up with a lot less water as you get into the drier summer months in July and August. um, Do you have the capacity to be able to? Is there going to be enough water available to be able to manage, you know, for your needs at that time? So subtle shifts combined with the sensitive sensitivity of how we've designed our water management systems that Peter alluded to, um, is, is going to be a very,
2: very big challenge in the coming decades. So there's a great way to describe this, which is we live in a 21st century with a 21st century climate with a 20th century infrastructure and 19th century laws and policies. Align <laughs> <laughs> that. Brooke Barton?
1: Yeah, I, I just want to say that you know, from our vantage point, you know, working with the business and investor community, Increasingly, you know, corporate leaders, investor leaders are seeing that we can't. Like, we're gonna, we're gonna need to be much smarter at managing these issues on the ground going forward because we are gonna have climate change. Climate change is happening, but we cannot get, we cannot let it go to four degrees. We cannot let things get to the level they're set to go with a current approach to managing carbon in our economy and in the global economy, and that's why you know companies like General Mills, Mars. Um, uh, Nestle, uh, Starbucks are coming out and saying, you know, we need climate policy. This is not just about, um, you know, uh, higher costs for fossil fuels for our business. This is about losing our access to agriculture, to reliable water. We cannot, we cannot secure our business into the future. And I do really think that the voice of business being heard on these issues, on both managing water more sustainably and driving much faster reduction in carbon emissions, is going to be critical. Um, as we move this conversation forward.
0: Brooke Barton is director of the Water Program at Ceres, an investor group. Uh, Let's have our next question at Climate One. I'm John Hurst. I'm a chemist. And uh, I uh, enjoy hearing
3: the optimism you have with regards to economic solving this problem or planning solving it. To what degree do any of you go home at night and ask the question, are there enough people on the earth? Is it time maybe to... Think of this
0: in a grander way that we're, we're just overdoing it in general. Population, often the, the elephant in the room.
2: Peter Glick? Yes, absolutely. Uh, all of our problems, I think, would be less severe with a smaller population than a bigger population, uh, especially our water problems because it's a water availability and wa- water use. Having said that, we do have a responsibility to meet the basic needs of, for water and sanitation for everyone, no matter how many people there are. So we have to get the population problem under control. I, I agree. But in the meantime, we also have to deal with the population that we have. And, and that's a uh, it, it's not either or.
0: And a lot of environmental organizations don't like to touch it. A lot of people in energy, climate, think that population is a contentious, controversial, social, cultural war issue that they don't want to get involved in.
2: Yeah, I, I'm not, I don't subscribe to that. I, I think we have to talk about it. And I'm, I'm, I'm delighted that there was a question about it. Uh, Anne Ehrlich is, is on our board of directors. She, she reminds me all the time that we, we shouldn't forget about it. Um, So let's go to our next question. Thank you. Hi, my name is Stanhope Gould. I'm a retired journalist. Uh, Putting together the piece of the gentleman who mentioned that uh, the glaciers are melting, the pressure on groundwater has led uh, Lester Brown to write that uh, the groundwater pressure and the uh, melting of the glaciers has created the greatest threat to human food
3: security in the history of the race. Does anybody agree or disagree with that? Brian Ricker? Yeah, so – I've been doing a lot of research with some um, global modeling groups. These are people, who are, they're, they're computer geeks, frankly. Um, they, um, and they keep track of the water conditions, the water budgets, in literally tens of thousands of different watersheds and different aquifers around the world. And so um, what we know, sort of the best available information on that, is that about a third of all the water sources on the planet um, are, are being used so heavily that, they're, that the people that rely upon them are experiencing shortages of water. So about a third of all the water sources. What I mean by shortages, it means on an ongoing basis in, in a lot of places, it means during certain months of the year. In other places, it means only when we have a severe drought in others. But a third of all of them are being, the people depend upon those those systems are experiencing shortages. Um, About half of the world's population is dependent upon those places, but the most frightening thing to me is that three-quarters of all irrigated agriculture relies upon water sources that are experiencing water shortages. And so, yes, we have a very, very serious issue there. And there are certain crops that uh, tomatoes, corn, wheat, there's a number of crops that the portion that are are being grown with, with irrigation are situated in disproportionately areas of water stress. So there's a number of individual crops that are being grown in places where, um, you know, in 80% of the places where they're being irrigated, they're they're experiencing water shortages. So it's quite frightening. It's quite frightening. Uh, When you talk to climatologists and people like that, they talk about how
2: fast things are happening. Uh, Is time a concern for you people? Oh, yeah. Absolutely, I think. I mean, what are we talking about? We're on a racing train here, and nobody's at the hand. Nobody's at the controls. Is Thank my feeling. You. Thank you. Uh, on the groundwater question, another way to think about this is by some estimates, a, th- a third of global food production comes from unsustainable groundwater basins—basins basins where we're overpumping groundwater—and the Central Valley comes immediately to mind, uh, as does Northern China, as the great parts of India, as extensive parts of Northern Africa. Uh, that's unsustainable. We cannot maintain that level of food production because those groundwater resources are going to become more and more expensive. That's peak, peak water. It's like peak oil. It's an, it's a non-renewable resource when we use it like that. That, that's a crisis. It's, it's one of the things that led to groundwater law for the first time in California this year. Uh, we now, we were the last state, the dubious distinction of being the last state to have any sort of groundwater law. And we do finally, but it's going to take a, many, many, many years before, even in California, even in a good year, our groundwater basins are not in gross overdraft. Peter Glick, let's put this in a
0: form that people can maybe get their hands on. How much water is embedded in a hamburger or a glass of milk? What are some of the water-intensive foods that if you care about climate, you care about water, you want to uh, think about when you consume?
2: So there has been in the last few years, uh, I mean the good, part of the good news is that we're talking about water much more. And part of that is there. there's a growing understanding that there is water and lots of other resources like energy embedded in the things we buy and consume. There, it takes water to produce all of the goods and services that we require. Uh, it takes 1,000 tons of water to make a ton of wheat. That's how much water takes to grow a ton of wheat. Uh, it takes fifteen or 16,000 tons of water to grow a ton of cow, Because we feed grain to cows. That's how we make it. So so our diets are implicated in our water footprint, if you will. Uh, A a heavy meat diet is more water-intensive than a vegetarian diet. And as the world is moving toward a more meat diet, not just the United States, which is actually maybe leveling off, I'm not sure, but much of the rest of the world is consuming more and more meat. And that's a water – there are water implications to that as well. And there's water in everything that we do. There are lots of good websites, the Water Footprint Network, uh, the Global Footprint Network, the Pacific Institute has some data on, on some of these things about the water in a cup of coffee or a pound of meat or, or a semiconductor or all of those things if you're interested. Google Water Footprint.
0: I want to thank our guest here today at Climate One, Peter Glick, president and co-founder of the Pacific Institute, and author of The World's Water, Brian Richter, chief scientist of the Global Freshwater Program at The Nature Conservancy, and Brooke Barton, director of the water program at Ceres. I'm Greg Dalton. Free podcasts of this and other Climate One programs are available on iTunes. Thanks for coming, and thanks for listening to Climate One. Thank you. Thank you. Climate One is the sustainability initiative at the Commonwealth Club of California, a nonprofit and nonpartisan organization. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. Our producer is Jane Ann Chen. Alyssa Kerr is the assistant producer. The audio engineer is Andre Heard, and editor is Annie Chelsea. Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. This is Climate One, a conversation about powering America's future.